This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Friday, November 3rd. On the pod today, the leader of Lebanon's militant group Hezbollah warns that a wider Middle East conflict is a realistic possibility if Israel does not stop attacking Gaza. Is Hezbollah's involvement in this war on a greater scale inevitable? Our Middle East experts weigh in. Plus, some big topics on the tail for Canada's finance ministers, Alberta's proposal to leave the national pension plan, and threats to stop collecting the federal carbon tax. Where did they land on these issues? We'll ask the finance ministers from Ontario and Alberta. Plus, a carbon tax carve-out that was supposed to calm the political waters in Atlantic Canada instead unleashed a storm across the country this week. Our Friday Pulse panel weighs in. We're going to begin with an update on the Israel-Hamas war, where today the Israel Defense Forces took responsibility for an airstrike on an ambulance just outside Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital. Israel says it was targeting Hamas. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins me now from Jerusalem. So, Ellen, what is the latest we know on what happened at Al-Shifa hospital? Well, David, we're seeing a lot of really tough-to-watch video coming out of Gaza City tonight from Al-Shifa Hospital from outside of it. The aftermath of an Israeli airstrike that hit at least one ambulance. And in that footage, you can see the scramble uh, to to get the injured into the hospital. There's blood on the ground. A really difficult scene. Now, the Israel Defense Forces posted about this strike uh, earlier tonight. We can show you what they wrote uh, online. They say that this ambulance was being used by Hamas, that it was struck by an Israeli aircraft and, in their words, neutralized. Now, that is not at all what the Palestinian Red Crescent Society uh, is saying. It's saying the vehicle that was hit, and at least one of the vehicles that was hit belonged to them, uh, was part of a convoy that was transporting injured people between Al-Shifa, the main hospital in Gaza, the biggest hospital in Gaza City, uh, and the Rafah uh, border crossing. The, the Gaza Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, says there are dozens of casualties from this strike. We're also hearing, uh, David, from the World Health Organization. We can show you what the head of the WHO posted in response to this, saying uh, he's utterly shocked by what happened, calling for a ceasefire now. And so this uh, strike on this ambulance, David, is sort of fitting into a grim pattern that we've seen over the past few days. We had the strike at the Jabalia refugee camp earlier this week. Israel said that took out a top Hamas commander, that it wiped out Hamas uh, infrastructure in that area. But there are also dozens of others who were reported uh, killed or injured. A nearby hospital said it was filled uh, with the injured. We had we heard from the UN yesterday saying that at least four of its UN-run shelters have been damaged by Israeli airstrike and that dozens of its staff members have been killed in Israeli airstrikes. Now Israel says all of this action is targeting Hamas, but all of these examples, David, show the growing devastation, the broader growing devastation for civilians in Gaza. All of this is happening against the backdrop of diplomacy. Ellen, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Israel again today. What did we hear from him? 
Well, it's clear that the U.S. wants this war to be playing out uh, differently. Antony Blinken's big message today in high-stakes meetings with Israeli officials, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the war cabinet, was that there needs to be humanitarian pauses in this conflict. Blinken said that would accomplish a number of things, that it would help get humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza, that it would help free the more than 200 people taken hostage by Hamas in the October 7th attacks, and that it could help minimize civilian casualties. Now, he reasserted the U.S.'s support of Israel's right to fight back against Hamas, to defend itself against Hamas. He he talked about seeing new video of the aftermath of the October 7th attacks, the horror of that day. But he also talked about how he's affected emotionally by seeing video of Palestinian children being pulled from the rubble in the aftermath of Israeli airstrikes, saying more needs to be done to protect Palestinian civilians. Here's a bit more of what Blinken had to say about the possibility and the need, in his words, for humanitarian pauses. We recognize this would take time to prepare and coordinate as well with international partners. A number of legitimate questions were raised uh, in our discussions today, including how to use any period of pause to maximize the flow of humanitarian assistance, how to connect a pause to the release of hostages, how to ensure that Hamas doesn't use these pauses or arrangements to its own advantage. And so that call from Antony Blinken for humanitarian pauses, David, but as he was finishing his comments, Benjamin Netanyahu was on TV here in Israel giving a televised speech to his country, thanking Antony Blinken for his visit here, thanking the U.S. for its support, but saying there won't be any pauses in the fighting, that Israel needs to keep fighting back against Hamas, and that it won't stop doing that until Hamas is defeated and the hostages are freed. But clearly, from Antony Blinken's visit today, David, that Israel is under pressure from its most important ally. Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. Global Affairs Canada has sent an email to Canadians in Gaza telling them they may be able to get out of Gaza as soon as Sunday. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Canadian officials are prepared for the evacuation of Canadians, permanent residents and their families in the coming days. Uh, We are uh, working with all of our uh, regional officials and our allies to make sure that as Canadians come out to safety, hopefully in the coming days, uh, they are properly supported. Uh, We've been there from the very beginning for people uh, leaving the West Bank, for people uh, leaving Israel since uh, since, uh, October 7th. Uh, We will continue to be there to help Canadians and their families get to safety. So there will be consular officials on, on the ground? We will be there as we are. Now, we have repeatedly asked for our government official to come on the show this week to explain what they are doing to ensure these hundreds of Canadians get out of Gaza and to explain the complexities of negotiating with so many countries with so many interests because Canadians with family in Gaza have been seeking those answers too. But once again, no government official was made available today. That's Hezbollah leader Syed Hassan Nasrallah, who addressed the public today for the first time since the October 7th attack by Hamas. Nasrallah warned the U.S. to halt Israel's aggression against Gaza. He said fighting on the Lebanese front could turn into a full-fledged war, but that depends, he says, on Israel's escalation in Gaza and towards Lebanon. 
Okay, we're going to turn to two Middle East analysts for more analysis on all of this. Rhonda Sleem is a senior fellow and director of the Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. Thomas Junot is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa, specializing in the Middle East. Thank you both uh, for, for joining me today. Rhonda, I wonder if we could start with, with your assessment of what we heard from Hezbollah today, warning the U.S. to be ready for all possibilities if Israel doesn't stop. That sounds like threatening rhetoric. What do you make of what Hezbollah and Nasrallah said today? Well, I mean, what he said is that what's happening on the border between Lebanon and Israel and has been happening for a while now, uh, uh, escalation, this escalatory spiral is here to stay. And it's going to be proportional. At one point, he made a, he enunciated, in my opinion, a new red line, which is when he said, you know, any civilian hit in Lebanon will be met by hits on civilian targets in Israel. So basically trying to reinforce old rules that, you know, the fight is between military to military, you know, fighters to fighters, let's spare the civilians. That's one. And the second point he tried to make, which is any kind of, major escalation, regional conflagration, as, as far as Hezbollah is concerned, is dependent on what happens in Gaza. Now, what is the threshold they are looking, what is their threshold for escalation in Gaza that in my, their mind will trigger a regional conflagration? I don't know. Is it big mass casualty event? Is it new weapons? Uh, but definitely in the past, I have said, any attempt at destroying, eradicating Hamas is a red line for them. And as you said, the, 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 the threat against the U.S. reminded very much of 1983. In fact, he made a specific reference to the early 1980s, to the 1983 attack on the Marine barracks in mm. Beirut. And he said something which was really interesting and new. You know, it's uh, when he said the people who were responsible for that attack are still alive today. You know, to, to my mind, this is like the first time that Hezbollah takes that kind of ownership of that attack. Right. You know, at the time who did that attack was, you know, left a little bit confusing. But today he said the people who did the attack or who planned the attack are still alive today. So it's a clear threat to the United States and, and basically laid the blame on the United States for this war. He said this is a U.S. war. This right. is not only Israel. This is the U.S. War. So, so Tama, you know, warning the United States, saying if Israel hits civilians, we'll hit civilians back, and sort of saying what happens in Gaza could determine their response. What does that say about Hezbollah's willingness and desire to maybe escalate what's happening in the region? I would say that there was a message in, in Hezbollah's speech today that uh, it prefers not to escalate. Uh, that obviously has to be caveated in many ways, but I find that the main takeaway from the speech as a whole was we would rather not have a full-blown uh, war with Israel. Um, I think that a number of, of observers have been predicting that that was Hezbollah's preference. Uh, in the case of an escalation, Israeli retaliation on Lebanon would be absolutely devastating. Uh, it, the, you know, the destruction on Lebanon would take uh, years and probably decades to, to recover from. And this is something that Hezbollah probably wants to avoid. I mean, there, there's a bit of a deterrence, a very fragile deterrence, but a deterrence nonetheless between the two. And to a, some extent, there was a confirmation of that in, in Nasrallah's speech uh, this morning. Uh, he did not give a complete 
blank check or green light on Israel to say, do whatever we want. We are not going to do anything. There was a clear message. There is somewhere a red line. But as Randa said, it is ambiguous exactly where it is. Um, but to me, ultimately, the main takeaway was we would rather not escalate, uh, you know, but if we have to, we will keeping in mind that it's not clear what that means. Right. So, so Rhonda, something that jumped out at me in this, and and tell me if it's important or not, expressed support, I guess, for what Hamas did on October 7th, but made clear that the attackers were 100% Palestinian, basically saying it was not us, we had nothing to do with it. Is that significant? Am I correct in, in seizing on that? That's that is significant. I mean, both Hezbollah and Iran have from the get-go been saying this is a Palestinian operation. I mean, he kept repeating, Nasrallah, uh, this is all a Palestinian operation. And uh, now, there is one thing about timing, you know, not knowing the timing of the operation, but whether they knew, you know, they knew of the planning, mm-hmm. they knew, I mean, that kind of operation by Hamas was pulled based on experience that was accumulated by different members of the resistance axis, including Hezbollah's experience in Syria, including the Houthis' experience in Yemen, including the Iraqi militia's experience against the American. So the timing might have been unknown to all of them, including Hezbollah and Iran. But I doubt whether the planning, the training, which took a number of months, if not years, and definitely the weapons and the, you know, the money for this, definitely they knew about that. Right. So, so Tamara, Antony Blinken in Israel again today, many trips to Israel over the course of this, supporting Israel's right to defend itself, but again, pushing for humanitarian pauses. And with Prime Minister Netanyahu coming out and saying the ceasefire and pauses are really a non-starter until the hostages are are, are released. How how do you think this will play in the region as they try to keep a lid on on this from spiraling? So it it appears that the U.S. strategy right now is what a lot of experts are calling the bear hug strategy. So trying to hug Israel as closely as possible with the the idea that to be able to have some kind of influence on Israel, uh, the the rhetoric and the support has to be very warm. And that it is only by doing that that the U.S. will be able to have some tactical influence on Israel, in this case, to push it to exercise some limited restraint, including by allowing for humanitarian pauses. There's a very legitimate debate as to whether that's the best strategy for the U.S., but that seems to be the the case for now. Um, Will these humanitarian pauses work? I, I, I think there will be some, uh, but I'm skeptical that, that there will be certainly not as much as the U.S. would want. Israel right now is not in a space where it is willing to negotiate at that level. Uh, there is, I wouldn't say consensus, but there is a lot of support throughout the spectrum in Israel for this operation to continue in opposition to a ceasefire. There's mounting criticism of Netanyahu on a number of things, and I think that will only escalate, but not on the issue of, of the ceasefire, certainly not for now. Regionally, this absolutely, as you were saying, puts the U.S. in a delicate uh, position because a lot of, of the U.S.'s closest partners in the region, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, are themselves uh, in a very vulnerable position. So I would expect that they will be pressuring the U.S. more and more as this continues. So uh, on that, Rhonda, uh, you know, the Secretary of State and the President and others have been calling for these humanitarian pauses, including in person today. And then within hours, Israel hits an ambulance outside al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City. Now, the IDF said they did it because the ambulance was being used to transport Hamas fighters. But how do you think a moment like this uh, is looked at uh, in the region by, by all the key players on the other side? 
it's looked at with a lot of skepticism about the U.S. influence over Israel. And by the way, let me add something to what Thomas has said about Moses versus ceasefire. One of the one of the reasons I think the U.S. also is not pushing for a ceasefire, not only because Israel is not willing to accept, is that because they know it might not hold. And there are political implications to pushing for a ceasefire that eventually does not hold. Poses is something else. You know, you can maybe, you know, uh, even if it doesn't hold, it doesn't have the same kind of political implication uh, internationally, regionally as a ceasefire after it has been negotiated and struck. So uh, so I think the region is looking with skepticism. Uh, it's, uh, but again, you have to say that a lot of the allies or partners of the United States in the region, uh, you know, are trying as much as possible to navigate between a public opinion that is enraged, you know, right. about what they are seeing on their TV screens and between their interests uh, of maintaining of uh, security interests with, with the United States, security interests, uh, economic interests with the United States, but also security interests with Israel. I mean, only Bahrain parliament has called now for the, recall, for the uh, expulsion of the Israeli ambassador from Bahrain. Bahrain is one of the signatories to the Abraham Accords. We have not seen other countries doing that. Jordan has asked the Israeli ambassador to leave. He has already left, in fact, you know, earlier. Uh, it called its own ambassador from, uh, from, uh, from Israel. Egypt has yet to do that. Emirates, United Arab Emirates has yet to do that. So every, you know, these countries are trying to nav navigate a very thin line between, you know, again, uh, you know, appeasing a, a, a very angry, enraged public opinion and, uh, and keeping, you know, their relationship with the United States, but also with Israel still, you know, uh, viable. So, so Rhonda, just to stay with you uh, for, for a follow-up there, the, the ambulance incident, going back to this unspecified red line, you say, that Hezbollah has, has, has drawn with the speech today in terms of what happens in Gaza. The, the Gaza city is encircled. There's been talk about, you know, the key hospitals being used to harbor Hamas uh, organizers, so this makes it a possible target. And now this, I mean, how do moments like this intersect with what Nasrallah said today in terms of what Hezbollah is willing to tolerate before it escalates? I think it looks like their threshold is pretty high. You know, uh, I think they left all the options open. They are ready to intervene. But by saying this is totally a Palestinian operation, I think they are trying, they are waiting until basically Hamas says we cannot sustain it. We cannot stay in the fight. This is about to eradicate us. I think this is where. And then he said, you know, already we are doing enough to divert Israeli resources away from the fight with uh, with Hamas in Gaza, and so they said we are. He said we are doing our our share. You know there is a front. It does not appear apparent. You know as it as it is. You know in the case of Gaza, but there is a front, and we are doing our share. And they have lost more than fifty fighters already, and so uh, so I think their threat. But still, the fact that he said it's a Palestinian fight, right. I think the party that's going to determine escalation eventually is going to be Hamas. Okay, that, that's interesting. So, so Tamar, just on the issue of ceasefire, humanitarian pauses, all of the diplomatic dance on that with the humanitarian crisis uh, unfolding in the background. How do you make progress on those issues when you've got one of the leaders of Hamas going on television in Beirut saying, we'll do what we did on October 7th, there will be an October 11th, there will be an October a millionth, we'll do it again and again and again while saying there should be a ceasefire. You, you know what I mean? Like, how does Israel can't possibly move when Hamas's leadership is saying things like this publicly? 
No, absolutely. And that, that particular interview by one of the leaders of Hamas uh, is, is, is not helpful. And that's, that's a bit of a, a strange understatement to, to say. But right now, and I, I said that three minutes ago, and I'd really emphasize that, the political space in Israel mm. is not towards a ceasefire. It is not towards negotiations. And who knows how this is going to evolve, but I certainly don't expect that to change significantly in the short term. And there's two different tracks going on. Netanyahu is extremely contested, and, and the more this goes on, the more I'm skeptical that he survives politically after this ends, uh, because he is so contested as he was before, but much more now. But right now, on the right, on the center, and, and to some extent on the left in Israel, uh, the, the, the consensus is no ceasefire because a ceasefire uh, is perceived as providing a victory to Hamas and ensuring that this will happen again and again in the future. We may agree or disagree with that outside of Israel, but that's the view in Israel. And speeches by like that one or the interview, like the one by the Hamas leader recently, and several other statements only serve to reinforce that dynamic and, and therefore prolong the possibility of a ceasefire. So, so Ron Deslim, just as a final point, I, I, we don't appear to be any closer to any kind of a resolution in, in this conflict. Do, but we also don't necessarily seem to be closer to escalation today, based on your analysis of, of Hezbollah. Is that a fair assessment of, of where we might be? Not the kind of escalation that will involve many, uh, you know, uh, right. uh, multi-front uh, attacks on each other's capital. But already also in the speech today by Nasrallah, in fact, there was a clear reference to a potential escalation by, uh, by uh, militants, militias in Iraq, uh, in Syria, and the, the Houthis in Yemen. So I think we might see more of what we have been seeing in terms of attacks, especially on U.S. targets in Syria and Iraq from these actors, as well as maybe on Israel. But in terms of the Lebanon-Israel uh, border, which is viewed as being the most dangerous one that can trigger a major, major regional war, I think the current escalatory spiral of tit-for-tat between the two parties, Israel and Hezbollah, is likely to remain in place. And as, as Nasrallah said, any, any escalation by Israel will be met by a proportional escalation by Hezbollah. Rhonda Sleem and Tama Juno, thank you so much. We always appreciate your time. Provincial and territorial finance ministers met with Christian Freeland this morning. This virtual meeting was initially prompted by Alberta's push to quit the Canada pension plan. There is no unanimity. Um, ever in our vast and diverse country. But I do believe that on the most important issues, at the end of the day, we always do find a way to work together. The meeting, however, ended up taking two tracks, with some provinces wanting to talk about the other big intergovernmental issue of the day, the call for a carbon tax carve-out that extends right across the country. The federal finance minister, Christian Freeland, spoke in defense of a national plan for both carbon and pensions. Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen-Falvey joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the the intended purpose of this meeting, to talk about Alberta's plan to withdraw potentially from the Canada Pension Plan. The the Finance Minister says she's committed to getting some numbers. Where, where, Where do things stand on this issue now, as you see it? Well, first off, we did have a very constructive meeting and uh, grateful for that meeting. And uh, you're right, uh, people talked about uh, the stability and the national unity issue of having the Canada Pension Plan and having the chief actuary 
get involved uh, in providing some rigor on a very complex and complicated set of numbers and uh, with a lot of moving parts within the Act and a lot of uh, uh, math that has to get involved was a welcome, welcome uh, suggestion by the Minister. Of finance, uh, Christian Freeland. Not to get too mathy in the conversation, but it's kind of a math conversation. Uh, I mean, Alberta has its set of numbers from, uh, you know, LifeWorks that it obviously wants to work from because it favors their interpretation. Have you agreed on what the chief actuary would base their assessment on, or does that need to be worked out? Because the inputs could really determine where that lands, right? Yeah, no, one step at a time, and I think it's a very good, positive step forward, getting the chief actuary. We've got a lot of work to do to uh, probably, uh, and, and Ottawa has to do that to kind of give some instruction there. But I'm very encouraged that this is a, a step forward in the process. Did it calm any of the concerns at, at the table, Minister? Because I know there's been a lot of concerns. The smaller provinces saying this could be punitive, particularly in places like Atlantic Canada. And I know you're worried about the broader stability. David Eby uh, was talking today about his concern about the, the threat to the overall plan. Did this calm people down or just give this conversation some direction? No, I think everyone talked about the need for national unity, stability in a time of uh, uncertainty, economic uncertainty. You know, I've done the fall economic statement yesterday, uh, and we live in a in an uncertain world economically, uh, an uncertain world geopolitically. Um, you know, we've taken actions uh, like uh, cut the gas tax, kept that going. You know, that's such a critical point right now when we have uh, uncertainty in the world, costs of everything have been pretty high, and particularly food and other inputs. So, uh, of course, uh, we may have talked about uh, the pressure the carbon tax is having, and we've we've obviously moved in Ontario, and we'd like to see Ottawa make a move. Okay, so so on that, we, we've seen the letter that uh, Premier Ford has written to Ontario MPs, urging them to sort of lean on the Prime Minister, I guess, the way the, the Atlantic MPs did on the, the home heating oil uh, carve-out. Um, how did that affect the nature of the conversation today? Because my understanding is Christian Freeland was really kind of the driving force on this carve-out in, in many, many ways. And people are, are, are saying, if you want this, you need to talk to her. How did that go? Well, look, I, I'll just say this. Uh, you know, we're talking about national unity and the Canada Pension Plan uh, this carbon tax is now becoming an issue of national unity. You can't uh, lean in and, and because uh, there's a bigger liberal caucus in Atlantic uh, Canada and leave the rest of Canada behind. And, and uh, what the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, did this morning was send a letter to the chair of the Ontario Liberal uh, Federal Party uh, here in Ontario saying, hey, you got to fight for Ontario and we want to fight for Ontario too. We, we have 90%, 97% natural gas uh, for home heating, you know, we we uh, people are hurting. We did our part in the gas tax uh, set, uh, with the 5.3 cents a liter that uh, I continued on and extended to next year, plus what we've done before. It's, it adds up to 10 cents a liter. That's meaningful relief at a time then where costs are very high and food and other things are very high. We need the federal government and Ottawa to step up at a time that's very challenging for many people in not just Ontario, across the country, and uh, provide relief when it's needed. And uh, and so we, uh, I stand firmly with the Premier 
and asking uh, Ottawa, the Prime Minister, and, and others to step up for not just Ontarians, but right across Canada. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned national unity, uh, and I know this was driven primarily by the Atlantic Caucus because of the overloaded percentage of, of, of homeowners in Atlantic Canada that use home heating oil. But on, on a per-person ba- or on a, a nominal basis, there's almost as many people in Ontario that use home heating oil. They're going to benefit from this. There's another 100,000 or so in Western Canada and people in the north. So there's actually more people outside of Atlantic Canada who are going to benefit from, from this carve out uh, than there is in Atlantic Canada. And in total, it's under a million people. Is giving a, a million people who burn the most expensive home heating source, and some of them are low income, really a big threat to national unity? Is this not being overblown for political reasons? I don't think so at all. I think it's uh, fairness. Uh, you know, Canadians are, we're about fairness. Uh, we all accept climate change. It's real. We got we to gotta have an urgency around that. Absolutely get that. But putting a punitive tax on people at a time when they're hurting and when the cost of everything has been up to no fault of their own. These are global forces for inflation and, and the, the rising cost of many things, economic uncertainty. What we saw south of the border, Joe Biden, there's a different way to get to net zero than just putting on a punitive carbon tax. You know, we're building electric vehicles here. Um, you know, I'd love uh, Ottawa to step up as well for electric vehicles for, for example, the Toyota plant. Lots of great jobs. Um, Toyota wants to be here, wants to invest here. You know, Joe Biden isn't asking Ohio or Tennessee or Michigan to step up. We'll be there as Ontario, but we need the federal government to step up as part of greenifying all our economy. What we're asking for is some relief right now for the people of not just Ontario, but right across Canada. Okay, I, I just want to touch on that while I've got you, if I can, because it's, it's Toyota, I believe it's in Cambridge, sir. Correct me if I'm wrong on the location. They want to do a plan similar to what we've seen with Stellantis and, and Volkswagen and these sorts of things. Has the federal government emphatically said no to that? Because I remember speaking to Minister Champagne after I think Stellantis got finalized. He said, we're getting pretty close to the end. Does that mean there is no space at the federal level for a, a Toyota deal as you see it? Well, you have to ask them. Uh, I'm just going by some of what I read this morning in in the uh, in the Globe Mail and elsewhere uh, about uh, you know comments from the Prime Minister. I think it's absolutely critical. We have a once and in more than a generation, a once in a 50 year opportunity to convert uh, our auto manufacturing from gas to electric vehicle. We have great workers in Cambridge with uh, uh, in the auto sector, and we have the critical minerals. Joe Biden wants the critical minerals. Well, we've got them, so let's. Let's work together to be able to, as environmentally friendly as well, with First Nations, be able to access the critical minerals, get the infrastructure to get them, then get them into battery plants, like what Toyota would want to have in Cambridge and other companies, auto companies would want to have. This is part of the future. And I'll tell you what, David, when we work together, federally, provincial, we can do a lot more. We need the federal government to be there, too. But, but Minister, I guess as finance minister, you must have some insight into their appetite and tolerance for further investments into this based on the fact that you've had to cut or will have to cut some big checks for for Stellantis and and Volkswagen. I mean, what's your sense of of where this government is uh, on another big uh, electric vehicle deal for Ontario? Well, I think they've, uh, you know, based on comments that I heard from the Prime Minister, uh, they, they may be uh, not prepared to, to write that check. I would argue that uh, protecting the jobs in Ontario, what's good for Ontario is good for Canada. We have a historical opportunity to be the electric vehicle centre of not just North America, but one of the largest in the world. Um, 
for clean, green vehicles powered by clean, green electricity that Ontario is producing with some of the best workers. Uh, and we have the security of supply with the critical minerals and other components like green steel that goes into the cars. Mm-hmm. This is a this is nation building right here. And this is the moment to seize. OK, uh, just one final question, if I can circle back to the carbon tax. Uh, Scott Moe was on the show uh, this week, I think it was, saying that, hey, they're going to look at ways to not collect that tax and not send it back to Ottawa. Blaine Higgs has made similar noise in New Brunswick, uh, though he has said he wants to make sure he's not breaking any laws. Scott Moe has said he's willing to maybe break a law. Uh, where is Ontario on this? Are you just going to lobby for it or do you think you might take actions where you won't collect and won't remit to the federal government? Look, what, uh, what we're saying, and we're very clear in the Premier's letter this morning, is that uh, people are hurting. I took action, uh, our government took action uh, yesterday in the fall economic statement by saying uh, we're continuing the gas tax uh, relief for, for many Ontarians, uh, not just at the pumps, but obviously the people that grow the food and uh, farm the food, the people who truck the food and the people who distribute the food, they were providing relief uh, at a time of uh, economic uncertainty, higher costs. And uh, I think that uh, that's what this this is so critical. Uh, It's not about the environment. It's about giving uh, temporary relief to many uh, Canadians, Ontarians at a time when they desperately need that relief. Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy, thank you so much for your time, sir. My pleasure as always. Okay, we covered a lot of ground there, but the finance minister's meeting was called today to deal primarily with Alberta's intentions to maybe pull out of the Canada pension plan. So we're going to turn now to the province that started all this. It's Alberta Finance Minister Nate Horner. He joins us now. Minister Horner, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Christian Freeland said today she's going to get the chief actuary uh, involved to come up with some firm numbers on exactly what it would mean for Alberta to leave the Canada pension plan. Are you satisfied with that response from from the finance minister, and will you accept their math when they put it on the table? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see the opinion of the chief actuary. You know, that's something that that we've pursued as well. Uh, The Canadian Institute of Actuaries, the professional organization that uh, that uh, is their is their professional body. I guess we've asked them, or they asked us, to dig into the LifeWorks report, meet with the authors, kind of do a deep dive, go through the methodology and interpretation. So that's ongoing as well. But yeah, we appreciate it. it's the first it's the first uh, time the the feds have agreed to step up and um, agree they have a role to play in this. It's their legislation. How confident are you, though, in the life work numbers? Because a lot of other provinces and the federal government have cast a lot of doubt uh, on, on what they say your, your entitlement would be. And Peter Bethlen Falvey, not in this interview, but in an earlier one, said that if Ontario applied the same methodology, just Ontario and Alberta would be entitled to in excess of 100% of what's in the Canada Pension Plan Investment Fund. So how confident are you in the math that, that you've put on the table? Well, important to just for clarity, this is the LifeWorks report. It was an RFP. It was put out. It was one by Morneau Chappelle, Canadian-wide actuarial firm. And this is the formula that is in the CPP Act. It has been, there's been a withdrawal formula since 1966. It was updated in 1997 when the plan was changed from a pay-as-you-go to a modified pay-as-you-go, and you actually saw a substantive investment uh, income be part of the fund. And then it was updated again by this Liberal government in 2017 
uh, when the additional benefits became part of it. Right. But there, there's a caveat in the LifeWorks report where they say a, a literal reading of the legislation leads to a very large outsized sort of sense of entitlement. So they've gone with what they call an alternative interpretation that they use for the purpose of this report. So it seems like there's a, a legal interpretation of the legislation that, that could be at dispute here, as well as maybe a mathematical uh, dispute over exactly how much um, uh, you, you might be entitled to. So I, I guess this goes back to the, the what Christian Freeland announced today. Will the findings of the chief actuary be the set of numbers and assumptions that all the provinces are willing to work from. Well, it's it's the CPP Act. It's it's clear that any province unilaterally has the opportunity to proceed to proceed with this. Um, but like I said, this was the best information we had. We had it uh, validated by both legal and actuarial firms um, for its validity, or we wouldn't have put it out in the public sphere to be commented on. But we look look forward to, to seeing what they come back with. So what was your sense, Mr. Horner, of how the other provinces feel about this? Because um, I know on issues like carbon and, and energy transition, you have allies uh, at, at, the, at the finance minister's table and at the premier's table. It doesn't seem as clear to me that there are any when it comes to the pension plan issue. What was your sense of how the other ministers viewing the possibility of Alberta leaving? Oh, they, they definitely would like Alberta to stay in and, uh, and, and for good reason, obviously. And... Uh, no, there was there was a lot of nice commentary shared, and and I shared with them that uh, you know the Albertans that uh, that I know and represent they want to they want to know that CPP is is healthy and sustainable even should Alberta choose to uh, to withdraw and start an Alberta pension plan, and that's something else that the Life Work report showed was that even even at that asset withdrawal number CPP would revert back to a sustainability ratio that it had in 2013. When, when no one that I can recall was clamoring about, you know, the instability of CPP. So it was nice to share that with them, uh, hear them out. Definitely a lot of frustration over the carbon tax and Minister Freeland's unwillingness to discuss it at all in this meeting. I actually told Minister Bethlin Falvey, I know you had him on before me. Yep. I said, maybe you should write her a letter on carbon tax, seeing as how you got this meeting in a week. That <laughs> um, seems to be a little little quicker than, than Alberta can make anything move. Well, uh, yeah, uh, you, you might be on to something there. I don't know. Uh, but I, I've got a, a joint statement. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's from you, uh, the finance minister of Saskatchewan, Ontario, Mr. Bethlin Falvey, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick, calling for the federal government to eliminate the carbon tax to ensure fairness and ease financial pressure on Canadians. I, I know you say this is unfair because uh, Albertans burn primarily natural gas and not oil, uh, but the price of home heating oil is just so much higher than the price of natural gas. Um, is it truly uh, offensive to Canadians to, to look at a small subsection of the population that's using the most expensive heating fuel and finding a way to, to give them some help? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, it is. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you something else. I'm and I'm happy for my cousins in the Maritimes that are are getting this affordability. Everybody across the country should be receiving affordability uh, measures from this government coming into winter on a tax that doesn't work anyways. But I, I just did another interview following a Liberal MP from Alberta yep. who was telling me that I should take policy seriously. So. Uh, something just came to me, and I'll share it with you too. I think Alberta should pursue a subsidy 
where we will we will help if Albertans want to convert from natural gas to home heating oil. Maybe we'll we'll help with uh, one time cost to pursue that. If if this is such sharp policy, maybe we should follow suit. Well, I mean, it's only a three-year uh, exemption, or so they say, and, and there's actually more people outside of Atlantic Canada. When you look at the people in Ontario, the North, and, and Western Canada, I know it doesn't apply to Alberta in any meaningful way, uh, who burn home heating oil, if you look at the math provided. Um, so it is a national program. I take your point, though, politically, this was driven by concerns in Atlantic Canada, and, and that's what caused this to happen. Uh, but the doubling of the rural rebate, for example, the top up there on carbon pricing, that will apply in your province. Is that, is that of benefit, do you see, uh, for the people of rural Alberta on this? There is no benefit for the people of rural Alberta for this carbon tax. It is absolutely punitive to rural Canada. I've expressed this to this federal government in my previous roles as the agriculture minister. It is, it is absolutely ridiculous. Charge the people who use the most that have no alternative means to heat their poultry barns, to uh, pump water, to irrigate, to dry their grain, and then disperse it amongst the people that might have a choice with how they live. It is absolutely the most the craziest policy they could ever have. And that's why I'm the more I think about it, I'm deadly serious about this, about this subsidy to convert from natural gas to home heating oil. Um, just to expect it to be coming. OK, uh, well, we'll have you back, uh, uh, Minister, uh, when it gets to that point, because I, I think that would be another conversation worth having. But just if I can just circle back to the pension plan uh, for one final question there. I know finance ministers are going to meet again in December, right? There, there's usually a December finance ministers meeting sort of as part of the budget cycle and these sorts of things. Do you expect to have numbers on this from the chief actuary then? Do you know what the timeline on sort of the, this injection of the federal position into the uh, CPP debate might be? Well, this work takes time. I would expect, expect if it's the chief actuary, it will take, take a little time. They have more, might have more data and resources um, available to them than, a, than just a firm, but I would still expect it would take a month, but uh, okay. I guess they have that, that amount of time. It could be, could be ready. Okay. Uh, Alberta Finance Minister Nate Horner, uh, that's a sincere invitation. If you do go ahead with a policy to convert from gas to oil, we'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Canada's finance ministers met today to talk about Alberta's proposal to leave the Canada Pension Plan, but some provinces wanted to talk about carbon tax carve-outs for home heating as well. This carbon tax is now becoming an issue of national unity. There was disagreement at today's meeting, but the important thing was we were all there. We were all able to have a conversation. You can't uh, lean in and, and because uh, there's a bigger liberal caucus in Atlantic uh, Canada and leave the rest of Canada behind. Ontario Premier Doug Ford wrote to the chair of the Federal Liberal Caucus for his province, saying, with nearly half of the Liberal Caucus being from Ontario, it's time for these members to advocate for the families they're elected to represent. So where has all of this left federal-provincial relations? We're going to discuss that with our Friday Power Panel. Emily Nicola is a columnist for Le Devoir. Negan Sinclair is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press and a professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. And here with me in the studio, Marie Vastel is an editorial writer for Le Devoir and journalist and author Paul Wells. So Paul, um, 
we are going to give a tax break to low-income Atlantic Canadians and other Canadians across the country use home heating oil and the country is going to fall apart because of this? Is this really a national unity issue or what is going on here? And anything's a national unity issue if uh, somebody decides it is in this country. Right. Um, uh, I, I think the problem is not so much the bottom lines of, uh, of uh, uh, low-income folks in Atlantic Canada. It's the integrity of what was supposed to be the centerpiece yeah. of the Liberal Party's mm-hmm. climate uh, policy. That being said, I um, uh, look, uh, it's amazing when you get a bunch of politicians together, everyone plays politics. Minister Bethan <laughs> Flavi is astonished to discover there's regional politics going in here. Mm-hmm. I mean, he works for Doug Ford, who, who pushed Ottawa off the edge of the world as soon as he discovered that uh, there was a bunch of trucks parked downtown. So I, uh, Doug, Ford, <laughs> Doug Ford knows something from regional politics. Um, uh, you know, but now there's a bunch of uh, ministers getting together from, from, I think, five different provinces calling for the federal government to simply get rid of the carbon tax altogether. Yeah. Um, the, if Justin Trudeau was hoping that uh, to um, uh, put an end to a controversy a week ago, it's become pretty clear that that hasn't been the result. Uh, and um, like, how, how, does that, how does it get resolved? I don't know, but, you know, fortunately it's... Justin Trudeau's problem. Well, well, yeah, I was going to say, you're not alone in not knowing how to, how to get through this. Uh, Marie, uh, where do you think it, I, I mean, look, it, it, as Paul's right, there is the five finance ministers who have called for it to go entirely. It, it's not a surprising list. Alberta, Saskatchewan, yeah. Ontario, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. W- where are things after today? I think that it's very interesting from my perspective, being from Quebec, that we're having two sort of national crises that don't include Quebec. I think that's a very interesting turn of events. (laughs) The dynamics seem to have shifted, um, at least for now, where really the most recent um, autonomous uh, requests and and fights have been led by the prairies, um, Mm -hmm. namely Alberta and Saskatchewan. I don't think it's that surprising that this letter has been written and and that they're now asking for it. As Paul said, it was a key environmental policy of Justin Trudeau, as we said last week. By carving it out for Atlantic Canada, whether or not those reasons are legitimate, um, it it, it gives credence to the arguments by conservatives, and those provinces are mostly, if not all, conservative, um, saying that it costs too much and 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 it should be abolished and now essentially the government federal government has said yeah it does cost too much in certain um, instances so i think the meeting today almost being hijacked or or deferred to not so much talk about the cpp but talk about the carbon tax is yeah. indicative that this issue like you said is 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 not going away and it sounds like every time christopher freeland's going to meet with her counterparts or every time Justin Trudeau, though he doesn't talk to them as much as during COVID, but talks to his counterparts uh, or one-on-ones ministers talk to their counterparts, this is going to be brought up. Um, And I don't see how this calms down, given that it's a very um, lucrative argument for conservative governments to make um, that the tax costs too much and they want to get rid of it. Yeah, and look, Nigan, the the carve-out clearly driven by pressure from the Atlantic caucus. I mean, in the initial announcement, Cody Blois did the announcement, all the Atlantic MPs were there. There's actually more people outside of Atlantic Canada who will benefit from this than there is in Atlantic Canada. It's just the proportion is so high uh, in in Atlantic Canada. So it's a national program, but everybody kind of forgets that because of the regional political dynamics. And Nigan, what, what do you make of what happened today? Uh, yeah, undoubtedly, it's all obscured by the fact that Liberal MPs uh, really bucked against the government to make this work. Uh, this is a policy that isn't all that bad. And 
uh, it says a lot about the comms and the government or the inability of the comms of the current state because uh, it's something that deals with the issue of uh, low-income Canadians, and it's something that uh, may help in some regard in some way or another. However, that's just lost on the kind of wave of right-wing premiers across the country. I mean, I'm coming from the province that doesn't really have a problem with all of this. I mean, people keep talking about the prairies, and here is Manitoba behaving very well in Confederation and being quiet over here. And uh, I mean, no one's really talking about the fact that uh, out here in Manitoba, there's while it's natural gas, I mean, people, uh, if there's any province that should be talking about for affordability, it should be out here. Uh, but what it's instead is, uh, you've got premiers generally who want to talk about equality and they want to talk about fairness until it comes to things that they feel is unfair about them and then they suddenly want to secede from from confederation. And so that's really what today's meeting was all about is people posturing and it's particularly backrooms advisors advising premiers who are simply just wanting to act political in a very highly politicized environment around a very highly politicized issue, the carbon tax, and get a lot of political points from it. So, so, so Emily, as, as Marie smartly pointed out, we, we have a bunch of uh, national leaders saying we're having a national unity crisis with Quebec on the sidelines uh, <laughs> because of your abundance of hydropower, some of which comes from Labrador, and, and a cap-and-trade yeah. system, which Ontario was in yeah. uh, until the Ford government uh, pulled them out of it. Uh, I, I mean, w what is the view from Quebec uh, uh, on this? What's your sense of it? A cap-and-trade system that was adopted by a former conservative uh, leader, <laughs> federal conservative. Uh, so, no, it's... Uh, <clears throat> It's uh, it's interesting. I think the view from Quebec is uh, it's just uh, listening, watching popcorns, and just uh, you know, <laughs> so, sorry, eating popcorn, eating popcorn, <laughs> and and in general, just um, being very puzzled uh, by 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 the maths that people are throwing out there and the resistance to doing anything uh, about climate change. And I think uh, what's going on is an indication of on how. Uh, politics, especially on the carbon tax, has been completely disconnected from facts. It is facts uh, verified by the parliamentary uh, budget officer that most Canadians get a more of a rebate out of that than they than they pay, including most Canadians that that are heating their homes with natural gas. The issue is that every uh, mean of heating your home uh, gets taxed differently depending on how polluting it is, mm -hmm. and oil. Uh, Oil, oil heating is more polluting than any other way of, of, of heating your home. Therefore, the tax on that is much higher. And the price of that has been going up in the last years. And so it's a much higher tax on something that's already more expensive. Uh, and that is used by Canadians who are usually vulnerable, economically speaking is why that exception is there. I'm the one communicating it because I'm a journalist and I care about facts, but the issue is that the Liberal government is not communicating that. And we are having a conversation that is based on worries and fairness and, and equity around the country that is actually not related to facts. And so some uh, premiers might want to you know, revisit the, the, the Supreme Court challenge that they had, trying to have the Supreme Court to make an illicit decision about this. My guess is that the Supreme Court will bring everybody back to the facts, but I hope that we can get back to the facts ourselves before we get to that. I, I, I agree with that. Um, <laughs> it, uh, no, no, I do. It's, it's just on the affordability <laughs> issue. I agree that there's, you know, carbon tax, most people get the cash back and the Supreme Court has said that the federal government can apply it. The problem is that the liberal government has said 
that they don't want to apply it the same way everywhere with Atlantic uh, MPs mm -hmm. behind them. And, and on the affordability issue, which I'm not questioning, <clears throat> um, there are other ways perhaps that could have been done. This We've known that the Liberals wanted to bring in a carbon tax since 2015. They've confirmed it since 2016. They have exempted Atlantic provinces for years to, to give them time to, 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 to get ready for it. They could have perhaps... Um, brought in the, the, for lack of a better word, subsidy for the heat pump um, earlier. They could have... Uh, they actually did. It's been on the books for over a year. Yeah. Just nobody talked but, about it. But right? a year yeah. ago, we already knew this carbon tax. Like, we've yeah. known this for eight years now. They could have brought it in before a year ago. They could have bumped it up earlier when they saw it wasn't working. They could have bumped up the um, rural... Uh, top-up re rebate for people who, who live in rural communities and get more cash back for the carbon tax. There's other things they could have done without carving out the tax and giving right. so much weight to the conservative argument that is now opening the way for more breaches to the carbon tax to be requested and for it to be more easily um, torn down by a, a, an eventual possible conservative government. Nigan, you want to jump in? But I, I was just going to say, but none of that has got them political points up to this point. I mean, the rebate hasn't gotten them political points. Uh, and, you know, if just issuing more checks or, I mean, I think every single person, particularly in Manitoba here, uh, almost everybody is getting a rebate on support for areas around the carbon tax. I mean, people in areas that are in low income are actually getting more money as a result, but it's just not turning into political votes. And so you almost want the Liberal government to do something, and then they do something, and then we're all kind of like, well, why did you do that? Yeah. Well, you know, Paul, part of the problem here, I, I think, is, is the way the carbon tax was implemented in Atlantic Canada, right? In the early days of it, the Atlantic provinces all found a way to come up with their own system that yeah. met yeah. the stringent standards the feds wanted, but which exempted home heating oil. Mm -hmm. Then they got to the point where that just wasn't sustainable long term. So the home heating oil and home heating was going to be hit not with the gradually increasing carbon tax, but with a fully formed 65 mm -hmm. uh, whatever per ton uh, carbon tax that is coming in now. And, and so they were going to get go from zero to 65 without that gradual increase to do the adjustments. Yeah, I mean, the last time there was a first minister's meeting on carbon uh, pricing in the country was five years ago. And uh, just about every province has had a change of government since then. Mm -hmm. And it's true that most of the provincial governments now don't like Justin Trudeau. But federalism actually has to work to, regardless of, 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 of which team is, is on board. I, I'm starting to think it's time for the Liberals to, 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 to start to think about drastic and surprising uh, changes because grinding through simply doesn't seem to be working. So two possibilities. There's a motion on Monday with the NDP planning to vote uh, with the Conservatives on uh, on cutting, carving out all uh, different Home heating. Yeah. Yeah. Home heating. Um, the Prime Minister could declare it a confidence motion um, and, and call the NDP's bluff. Another thing they could do is scrap the carbon tax and say, look, I've been talking to Joe Biden. I was in Washington just, this, just, uh, just on Friday, and he doesn't have a carbon tax, but he's making uh, great progress with a substantial toolkit of other uh, uh, mechanisms, and uh, we're going to be inspired by that uh, uh, by, by that choice, but um, in, in, instead of in the meantime, he's getting boxed in. Uh, there's a scuttlebutt around town that uh, he made the change last week because a bunch of Atlantic MPs were getting ready to quit on him, and now he's got an environment minister who's threatening to quit on him if he makes any more. Um, when you are caught between two uh, uh, factions threatening to resign, you are no longer the leader of the government, and that's a problem. So. Uh, 
well, if, if he scraps the carbon tax, we're probably going to have a by-election in Laurier Saint Marie pretty quickly because <laughs> that's Stephen Gilbo's writing, and I can't imagine he would stick around. Uh, Emily, I, I, I could and maybe Wilk- Jonathan Wilkinson would also be upset. About I, I, I think there's quite a few people who would be upset with this. There's, there is discomfort in this carve-out, but I think they understood it because it's such a small percentage, right? It's like less than three. It's about three percent of the energy mix. But uh, Emily, th- this uh, this this motion that's coming on Monday uh, from Pierre Polyev to remove uh, carbon pricing on all home heating sources that the NDP is going to vote with. They've been looking for a HST, GST, depending on which part of the country you live in, sales tax uh, removal from home heating. Well, they're going to vote with it. I mean, could the Liberals go as far as Paul said and make a non-binding resolution like this a a confidence motion? Uh, Or would that be... Gretchen would have done it in a heartbeat. He would have done a lot of things differently. (laughs) I think that's pretty clear. But it would have been... Is that a nuclear option? Uh, it could be. The thing is, Justin's uh, Trudeau leadership is very weak right now. And I think, um, you know, even the fact that everybody's saying uh, that that the, the way that there was a carve out for uh, oil heating home uh, is uh, is um, is something that only existed uh, because of, you know, pressure from the Atlantic, Atlantic caucus is not something that would have necessarily made any difference. Uh, if Justin Trudeau was a stronger leader within his own caucus, the fact that, you know, you have to give in to regional pressures and everything starts to collapse after that is an indication in the, in and of itself of, of the, the, the weakness of uh, Justin Trudeau's hold on his own caucus. And we've had signs of that for months now. And I'd say since the summer, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been very strong. And so people are, basically playing harder and harder because they sense weakness. And that's the very dangerous thing to let people sense when you're mm. in politics. And so people are, are doing that. Premiers are absolutely doing that. If they didn't know that the, the prime minister is in a weak spot right now, they would also be behaving differently. Um, so that's, I think, what, what people are, are, are doing right now. And if you uh, say that you're going to scrap one of your key policy programs, you're just basically see, uh, showing even more weakness and people will then try to take even more away from you. Um, so if we know already that scrapping a part or suspending for three years a part of that wasn't a solution that appeased anyone, I don't think that doing even more of that is going to also appease anyone. It's just going to be free for all for whatever remains of Justin Trudeau after that. The, the thing that struck me about it, Marie, just to <laughs> <final> point, is <laughs> these are all very good points, Emily. <laughs> and I also liked your point in the beginning. Emily just about- explained Alberta, by the way. <laughs> just explained perfectly Alberta. And that's why this whole thing around the CPP, it's just blood in the water. That's what this is about. But uh, I guess in terms of getting back to the politics of what happened last week at this it was a 4 p.m announcement it was a late news release saying it was going to happen there was no technical briefing to walk us through how mm-hmm. it will be applied to all the different places and how the heat pump program would work like it, it felt rushed you know yeah for lack of a pierre polievre expression panicked um yeah. it did feel a little bit a little bit rushed. It seems like not everyone uh, in that party knew that it was going to happen. Um, but but to I just want to go back to uh, Emilie's point. I, I think the issue is also not taking a strong, dis- a strong and surprising decision. I think the issue is taking a strong and surprising position on your principles. And mm. that's where you show weakness, mm. where this has been a principle of this party for years, one of their key policies. It was supposed to be one of their legacy policies. And then you yourself poke holes in it by going back on your principles for what really only looks like an electoral uh, gambit. I think that's where 
the, the weakness to his leadership uh, was sort of sewed in. And if he does want to make it a confidence vote, I just want to remind everyone that I doubt the bloc would vote to get rid of the carbon tax. So it would kind of be a moot point, fair, in my opinion. Fair point. And, and look, just, uh, yeah, there's politics at play here, but Paul, just, I'm going to give you the last word, but I just want to drive home. There are a lot of, like, low-income people, certainly in my home province, that I see, who were really going to be hammered by this. But no one's disputing that. We're disputing no, no, the no, way no, I understand. to help I, I, them I understand, but I'm just saying I, that there is a, also, there is a compelling individual humane reason why you would reconsider some of these There's things. ways of doing it, is all I'm saying. Sure. Paul, last word to you on this. I don't actually think that Justin Trudeau will or should get rid of the carbon tax. My point is mm. yeah, yeah. he is just in an absolute world of trouble right now. Uh, um, it, 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 in some ways, the, 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 the public manifestations of the trouble were not huge. Percy Down is not a threat to Justin Trudeau. Mark Carney... Uh, his comments to the Global Mail were incomprehensible. He's not a threat to Justin Trudeau this week either. Um, but um, but uh, when you've got du- dueling factions in your party threatening to quit to, to run your policy, then um, you were in a much bigger uh, uh, hurt than you were when your big cabinet shuffle uh, was a huge dud in the summer. Your comments were very comprehensible, and we're going to end it right there. <laughs> I, want, I want to thank everyone from the Power Panel, Nigan Sinclair, Emily Nicola, Marie Vastel, and Paul Wells. Thanks, gang. A move to reduce the cost of heating some homes has raised the temperature of national politics. The liberal carbon tax carve-out for home heating oil was supposed to calm the political waters in Atlantic Canada. And instead, it's unleashed anger from other provinces saying it was unfair. It's all quickened the pulse of national politics. There will absolutely not be any other carve-outs or suspensions of the price on pollution. Why doesn't the Prime Minister pause the tax across the country until Canadians go to the polls? When will the Prime Minister stop dividing the country and put in place a measure that gives relief to all Canadians? All right, joining me now to talk about all this, Greg McEachern, former Liberal Ministerial staff Staffer and now with Can Strategies. Melanie Richet, former Director of Communications for the New Democratic Party, now a Senior Consultant with Ernst Cliff Strategies. And Fred DeLore, former Conservative Campaign Manager and Partner at North Star Public Affairs. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back. Um, Greg, uh, your Liberals have managed to do a remarkable thing, apparently start a national unity crisis that doesn't involve <laughs> Quebec. What a week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, there was a Cape Breton separatist party. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if we need to restart that. Yeah, you know, I, look, full marks to your power panel earlier. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of myth busting going on. And, uh, you know, the old adage, which I think was repeated, if you're explaining, you've lost. But we're in kind of a truthiness or truth-free zone. Um, you know, what I have a bit of a problem as an Atlantic Canadian on on this is it's starting to feel a little bit um like punching down on atlantic canada um and you know i noticed you know in november of 22 pierre Polliver saying that uh, oil heat in northern ontario it's a big thing no one talks about that anymore and the reality is i think the same around the same number of homes in ontario heat with oil as they do in atlantic canada um you yeah know, a little bit less but yeah pretty around, close yeah, right and, know, and certainly not as a share but and it's yes about three percent of the the population but in atlantic canada um i i don't want to do science here but gigajoule is the measure and if you measure um, one gigajoule in terms of how much heat it, it, it produces, what it costs. It's about $47 in PEI. It's about $12 in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. But the big difference is that in 
and I and I hate talking about this because I feel like I'm also um, bringing up some really uncomfortable truths about our country. But um, PEI and Nova Scotia are two of the provinces that use heating oil the most. They're also two of the provinces with the lowest average weekly salary. Yeah, and, so, and older populations too, yeah. right? And this reached a point, I think, where a lot of um, MPs, uh, a lot of people from the East Coast were starting to face the cold fall into winter. And, you know, it was starting to hit a, a breaking point here. But what it's you know, we have people talking about how it's just about Atlanta Canada and it's just about saving political hides. Um, you know, I think that this government made a lot of errors along the way where the, you know, the, there were signs that this was coming. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure having a bunch of Atlantic MPs behind uh, the Prime Minister when it was announced really helped that. It reminded me of when Jill Duceppe was at a signing ceremony <laughs> a few years there's back. An, there's an, there's an image you don't really want to conjure, yeah, you know, yeah. but and here so, we are, right? Yeah, so, you know, yeah. again, community Political communications is important. Mel, uh, what's your say? I, 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 the, 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 it was very much sold on day one. Is look what we've done for Atlantic Canada. Absolutely. I know it applies nationally, but there weren't like other. It was an Atlantic MP event featuring the Prime Minister. Absolutely, and we had a, an Atlantic MP saying, "Well, if you want your voice heard, you know, elect more Liberals." Which, um, when you are a government for everybody, that's not really what you want to hear. Um, but but we were here just a few weeks ago. We were talking about you know what's happening in Atlantic Canada and what are the solutions to fix that. And we didn't really have solutions. Now, never in a million years would I have bet that the government was going to come out and say we're going to um, exempt the carbon tax on on heating oil. I was I was super surprised by that. Um, and to your point, having Atlantic MPs behind him that's that's the message you said. We're only helping these folks. And what happens when you go out there with a message that is um, that excludes people instead of being inclusive of everybody who is having a hard time right now with, um, you know, putting food on the table or just right. affording life because life is more uh, expensive. Um, it, it's a slap in the face. It's, well, my struggles don't matter because these are the only struggles that you're talking about. And that's, I think, what we heard um, or what regular people listening at home heard from the Liberal government, and I think that's what their mistake was when they went out with that. Fred, that's certainly the way uh, the Conservatives are, are, are framing it and, and wielding it, because mm -hmm. they're swinging this one around. <laughs> yeah, look, I actually think we're seeing tremendous national unity against the carbon tax. <laughs> I think everyone, we're seeing all these premiers coming out yeah, across yeah. the board against it. And, you know, we're seeing Nova Scotia Premier, New Brunswick Premier, Ontario Premier, they're all united in it that they all think the carbon tax should be gone. Uh, and that's where they are on this. And it's, it, it is hitting everyone across the country. And for the Liberals to step on their own signature policy, the one thing that I could think about Trudeau's legacy over the last eight years was his environmental platform and what he's pushed for. And he's, he's really shot himself in the foot on this. And I don't know how he can recover from it uh, in terms of where he's actually, uh, what, what is he accomplishing? What is he doing? When if all this time we were told that carbon tax is supposed to be revenue neutral. Uh, it wasn't going to cost us more. We're going to get the money back. Yet they're doing these car votes now. And as an Atlantic Canadian, I understand uh, the, the oil issue is different there. A lot of Atlantic Canadians use it. But there's still like people across the board in this country who are dealing with major inflation issues. Mm -hmm. And when you're adding these taxes onto them that are, that are rising as we're going, they're tripled the, the carbon tax since it came in. It's increasing and it's becoming more of a burden on Canadians. Yeah, and we've known the oil issue was an issue in 2015, in 2019, in 2021. I mean, this is mm -hmm. not a surprise, right? So, so Fred, I want to stick with you because this brings up the thing you wanted to highlight is, mm -hmm. is the tactic the Conservatives ha have used 
uh, to exploit this. Well, right? the timing has been perfect for the Conservatives, where in, in the House of Commons, with every uh, session, the opposition parties get a certain uh, number of opposition days where they can control the agenda of the House yep. and bring forth a motion. The Conservatives brought forth a motion to to get rid of uh, or to get rid of uh, carbon tax on home heating across the board, uh, and that's what they push for. And we're going to have a vote next week on it. And this is a uh, an issue again that is resonating across the board. Uh, Polyev has been very strong on this, uh, pushing this issue for months uh, and dominating it. And now the Liberals, it feels like it, it couldn't have been set up perf- more perfect in terms of the politics of mm. it. So, so, Mel, on that, mm-hmm. um, <coughs> the NDP supports carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since the days of Jack Layton, uh, they have advocated for removing sales tax right. from home heating. They're going to vote for removing carbon <coughs> tax. Square that circle for me as a new yeah, Democrat. How yeah. do you, like, I, I get affordability, but... Yeah. You know, climate and carbon pricing, also something they believe in. Totally, and something that they believe in strongly, and as one of the things that sets them apart from the Liberals. Um, so, so what I think is difficult for maybe uh, the NDP to talk about this week is uh, the position that they're holding is a bit nuanced. And when you have a nuanced position, you're kind of explaining. And to your point earlier, when you're explaining, you're losing. Um, so I think I think that is a, a little bit difficult to explain how you're supportive of the carbon tax, but then um, you you think it should be removed for, for um, home heating in the same frame of you are the politicians that are sent to Ottawa to fight for people who are having a hard time. Um, and people who are having a hard time are... Um, feeling the burden of this carbon tax. So, is it a Northern Ontario play? Pierre Polyev <laughs> keeps talking about Timmins. Like yeah. he, they've got Charlie Angus squarely in their sights. I mean, is that what this is? Like a, a play to sort of like. Um help their fortunes a bit in places like that, the rural seats they hold? You know, I think it's a play of, um, and I was saying this earlier, I think if you, if you're, if the number one thing that you're worried about is fighting the climate crisis, um, you're probably doing okay. You're probably not worried about putting food on the table tomorrow. You're probably not worried about keeping a roof over your head. Your family's probably okay. You're not stressed about it. Um, and, And one of the things that um, is true about the NDP is we're kind of we have those two folks that you're always talking to. You're talking to people who want you to fight the climate crisis, but you're also talking to people who are trying to figure out what comes next tomorrow. Yeah. So, so is that balance of fighting for people to make sure that they're doing okay, that they can afford to live, um, which is what I think we're seeing um, with the support of of um, the the conservative opposition, right. um, but also doing something about the climate crisis. I think, unfortunately, though, um, in the same way that this nuanced position hurts the Liberals. It, it, it can't help but also hurt um, the NDP a little bit in the same way. So, so, Greg, the whole coalition, as the Conservatives call us, I know it's not a coalition. <laughs> going, you know, We're joking. coalition with I the Conservatives this week. What do you yes, mean? Exactly. You know, uh, but, you know, it, 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 it is a non-binding resolution, but it is a public picking of sides, and they're not siding with the, the people they have the confidence and supply agreement with. I mean, it, it, is there worry in Liberal circles about where that could be, lead? Well, um, I, I think, obviously, with the polls, uh, the NDP probably don't want to go to an election. Um, but how happy uh, are New Democrats with their leader around or, uh, you know, uh, on the leadership of the party around this? It brings up bad memories, I'm sure, for a lot of people back in 2005 when the Liberal government of Paul Martin fell mm-hmm. because the NDP supported the Conservatives. We lost child care for a decade. If you, re- if you really <laughs> want to make a New Democrat's blood boil, you bring yeah, this up. Yeah, you so do. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll quickly move on. They, they're so, only responsible for the good things. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you know, and the other thing, I, you know, my New Democrat 
Democrats' friends will say, there are people in the party that think that they should be a continual opposition party and try to move yep. that way, or they should try, you know, or they should aim to be in government. Um, I don't know what you know supporting the Conservatives does for either one of those missions. So, how do you view this, Fred? I, I mean, uh, you know, they do stand up every day, Mr. Polyev and his, and his, his MPs, and say this is a Liberal NDP coalition, and they apply a bunch of other adjectives to it, many of which I won't say on television. <laughs> but uh, how, how do you think this affects things going forward, this, this decision to vote with Pierre Polyev on Monday? Well, it's interesting to see the NDP try to play politics with this, which is what they're doing. They're abandoning their, their long-term uh, principles and, and policies on the environment, right? This is a view uh, or a, a policy that the liberals and the NDP are usually very aligned on. And for them to be doing this, they're looking at the voting coalition and, and what Polyev is doing right now. He's eating NDP vote as well as liberal vote. He's gaining the support, this blue collar worker. Uh, and I think the NDP are, are concerned about that. Uh, originally, you know, I thought the liberals made a mistake doing this where they may have um, weakened their hand on the environment front. But now we see the NDP completely abandoning it as well. So it feels like the, the liberals may actually win out by the NDP abandoning them. Interesting. Is, is that your worry, Mel? Like, um, you know, if Pierre Polyev is truly eating everybody's support, and, and he is, mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at, at, at the polling, um, that maybe your progressives get a little bit worried next election and maybe they vote strategically. I mean, is this a thing that's at play that concerns the Democrats at, at this moment? So I think the Democrats are always worried going into elections because they're, they're you know, they're not red or blue, which is what we've always had federally, mm -hmm. right? So they're always um, looking at elections a little bit differently than the other two parties. Um, and strategic voting is something that, you know, they've had to deal with in the last two elections that I've worked is, is something that always comes up in the last few weeks. I think... Um, I think Polyev may make your voters more nervous than so, Aaron O'Toole. So, uh, but I, I think there is an opportunity there, and uh, there's an opportunity for the NDP to hop on, right? So, so Pierre Polyev is talking to people in a way that is very class-based. And when you're going into the next election, the liberals cannot fight on class-based. They're going to bring back the culture stuff, and they're going to try to pull him in there. And I think there's an opportunity for the NDP to fight Pierre Polyev on the class stuff and position themselves as people who can actually beat the blue team on that class stuff and can actually right. beat the blue team and most of the seats that the blue team hold, right? In the prairies, in BC, in parts of Ontario, it's not a blue-red race, it's a blue-orange race. So there is still an opportunity, I think, there for the NDP to flip the strategic argument in right. their favor. But, okay, uh, we're getting tight on time, so I'm just going <laughs> to stick, stick with this so we can't. Uh, does Jagmeet Singh look like a class warrior when he goes out there? Does You know what he looked like? Does that does that work? I, I mean, Justin Trudeau is struggling with that after, like, winning on middle-class issues, Greg. I mean, uh, look, I don't want to, you know, judge anyone on their car choice or, or things like that, but I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure he is the right person to, to do that. I mean, you know, in terms of, of pure Polliver, he doesn't have a climate plan. Um, the election that Fred ran. Well, well people care about that. When but, but, it is but, no, affordability you, and you basic daily you fundamental You said earlier stuff, that right? the NDP would be more worried about the current conservative leader, and that's a good reason why. Because mm -hmm. the election that Fred ran, they actually had a, a climate plan. But they don't currently have one, and no one seems to be pressing them for one. I remember that climate plan because I got an early copy of it. That's right. We'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. I still like to know that. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, quite the moment uh, when, when, when we got that. Uh, so, Fred, just quick last final 20 seconds I mean, w w w on that point because we're, we're getting tight on time and we're going to go off the air. 
<laughs> well, no, look, I, I do think it's it's interesting. There's a fight on the left for that yep. environmental vote. And if uh, one party puts uh, water in their wine, but then the other party just throws the whole bottle out, I don't know what we're going to see. Okay. You know, a wine analogy is a good way to end the week on a Friday. Thank you so much, Fred Delorey, Melanie Richet, Greg McEachern. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.